All right, good morning and welcome everyone. You may be seated. Super excited to have you with us here as we start Advent at Bethany North. So glad to, uh, to actually have you enjoy. I know some of you more introverted folks, that's kind of a painful moment. Uh, it is beautiful to see you connecting even in small ways. We hope that's just a marker of what's growing in your lives. That's why we do coffee and muffins after. That's what we try to do a couple times a year, getting us uh, more connected in community. I want to take just a moment as you open up your bulletin, before I read scripture and start the sermon, just to highlight this postcard. This will be a mailing that we do every year to Christmas at Christmas time to our neighbors. Uh, this will go out to our community as well. This is meant to be uh, an invitation you can share with others. I want to highlight something. Christmas Eve, 9 a.m., because Christmas Eve is on a Sunday, and then 3.30 and 5. It's all the same service. Don't come twice, but just wherever your schedule works, in the morning or in the evening. And uh, you'll be getting more information. Christmas Eve is always a special time here, and we do a cookie reception afterwards and, and kind of connect. But on the back of this, you'll see something that went to the All Church uh, email distribution this week, a message for me regarding our winter, spring, and summer service times. So starting in January, we're going back to two services, service at 9 and 10.30, with about a 30-minute time between for community. And you can read more about that in the email I sent out. If you're not on that email distribution list, you can fill out a welcome card that's on, these, uh, on the tables here at the aisle, and you could drop that at the welcome station. We would love you to be getting our all-church email. But the long story short is that we had three primary goals in the fall of going to three services. It was discipling kids versus just doing child management. It was making room and service to invite others. And it was creating leadership development opportunities. Those three goals remain the same. But the uh, strategy of three services has not really served those three goals. And we are so thankful for this group that's adopted this early service. What's really happened is we have a huge morning service. So... There is much to be thankful for, um, but we're trying to kind of deal with some of the changing demographics. And so the last three weeks at Bethany have been the last, at Bethany North, have been the three biggest weeks continuously that we've had in seven years. Last week there was 235 kids, more than ever before in seven years. That's a praise God thing for sure. Uh, our service times are not enabling our three key goals of um, more leadership development, more room for others, and discipling kids versus just child management because we, create, we created a morning service that's just jammed. And so what we're doing, it, hopefully in the winter and spring, is doing two equal services at 9 and 10.30. And um, so I just, I would ask you to uh, kind of join with us and take the next plunge. This community has always been so flexible when we try things. And over the winter and spring, we'll need to try some things, particularly with family ministry, to disciple that many kids in two services. Uh, but it's one that, it's a challenge we're, we're excited to have, and, and um, we're just so thankful for, like I said, this morning service. I wish we could keep this 8 to 9 o'clock service, because you have all just made it really work. Um, it's our third service that's been really a challenge, where some weeks it's not enough volunteers, and then the staff is really kind of paying the price. And so as we go back in January... Uh, we just say, hey, we'll do two services. That was always going to be planned come the summer. We'll just start that a little bit early. And then what we do next fall, who knows? Let's not worry about it yet. But we know that 9 and 1030 will be our service times from now until at least fall of 2018, uh, if not ongoing after that. So Christmas Eve service on the 31st, we'll have one service at 9 with a breakfast to follow. You'll be seeing information about that. And then starting the first Sunday in January, we start a new series on Philippians, two services, one at 9, one at 1030. Let me pray. I'm going to read scripture and we'll begin. 
Lord God, thank you so much for this church and its heart for following you. We thank you for people coming, inviting neighbors, children coming, teens coming. Lord, you have been so good to us. You have been so good to us. And so, Lord, we just pray that we would steward uh, this gift of community that you have blessed Bethany North with, that we would grow in relationship one to another, that we would grow in relationship with you, God. You'd make us all disciples in your name. Uh, And all God's people said, amen. Our scripture reading today comes out of the book of Romans, Romans 8, verses 24 and 25. We're going to be looking all uh, Advent long at the familiar stories of Advent, but through this lens of Romans 8 and this idea of hope breaks through. Let me read scripture here. This is Romans 8, verse 24 through 25. For in this hope, Paul writes, in this hope, we were saved, but hope that is not seen, or I'm sorry, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. What a tease, but what a beautiful marker that hope breaks through in this season. Our our sermon title today is called Hope Breaks Through Unbelief. And again, all month long, we'll be looking at hope breaking through stories of of characters in the story of the birth of Christ. Today, by way of introduction, I want to start with an article that we came across recently in the Atlantic Monthly. There was an article from 2015 by the teaching team we studied this week. The article is called The Role of Adult Mentorship in Helping Children Deal with Trauma. And in this article, in the Atlantic Monthly, the writer Jessica LaHaye described being a teacher to a set of kids who'd been through tremendous amount of adverse childhood experiences. Now, anyone in the child development world is adverse childhood experiences, the ACE. There's actually an exam you can take because when children go through adverse childhood experiences, the number of adverse childhood experiences they experience, it typically is a marker towards poverty, addiction, uh, even death at a time. It's a marker of childhood trauma. And so the writer, Jessica LaHaye, being a teacher, she, she was trying to figure out how to bring her students through these adverse childhood experiences. And in her article in the Atlantic Monthly, she said the one thing that she could give her kids a, a, to help them move was hope. She says that she acknowledged that for many kids, hope doesn't come easy, but hope acts as a kind of vaccination against the violent effects of poverty, addiction, and childhood trauma. Hope, LaHaye says, says, is not just a pie-in-the-sky thing. People who can overcome and succeed despite adversity have a sense that I can do it. It feeds a vision, and that vision is what inspires and motivates and drives hope. Hope is what keeps you getting up when society tells you that you should be down and out. Hope is what keeps you persisting despite adversity. And so Leahy was a teacher, and in her research, she came across a writer from the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. Uh, the, the director, Val, a woman named Val Mahomes, said that hope was the greatest predictor with, with dealing with pediatric trauma. Hope was the greatest predictor of childhood success. It's pretty phenomenal, actually. The greatest predictor wasn't wonderful health care, wasn't even you know, the, the poverty line or, or, or the economic prosperity of a family or any other external markers. No, uh, according to the, the National Institute of Child and, and Human Health Development, hope is the greatest predictor of a child's success because hope creates endurance. And hope allows children, adults, all of us, to wait well in the midst of situations that can feel difficult. 
And so in the month ahead, for the next four weeks during Advent, we'll be looking at the characters of the birth of Christ through this lens of hope. Because our firm belief is that we, as we wait for the coming of Christ, that we celebrate now in the Advent season, if we, if we wait with hope, we're understanding more of Christ's mission to bring hope in our lives. We're not just trying to survive this season, we're trying to grow into more discipleship opportunities. We're trying to get a fuller understanding how the birth of Christ changes everything for our life today. How do we do that with hope? And so today, we'll look at hope in the midst of unbelief with two rather obscure characters from Luke 2, Simeon and Anna, that actually come after the birth of Christ. We'll be working backwards as we get towards December 25th and the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So our big idea today, you have it in your bulletin, is that hope breaks through unbelief with these two things we're going to lift up through Simeon and Anna, with endurance and obedience, endurance and obedience. And my encouragement would be for all of us, though the stories of Advent can often feel familiar, that we find something in the story today that's an encouragement in our own faith journey. Obedience and endurance, hope breaks through unbelief. Let's start first with this idea that hope creates endurance. Let's talk about hope. Paul talks about here in in Romans 8 that, that verse 24, in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes, Paul asks, for what they already have? That's, that's this amazing thing where Paul is asking this rhetorical question, where does hope lie? Hope lies in the existence between where we're at and where we're going. And so in this very unique way, though everyone says, oh yeah, we want hope, in this unique way, hope's very definition is forged by what is yet not present. And that's like kind of a like, oh yeah, well, no duh. But when you think about that, it's staggering. The very nature of the definition of hope is that we will cling to something that doesn't yet exist. That is what hope even means. In 19, or I'm sorry, in 1828, the Webster's Dictionary had this helpful distinction between wishing and hoping because they're different. In the Webster's 1828 Dictionary, it says that hope differs from wish and desire in this, that hope implies expectation of obtaining the good desire or the possibility of possessing it. That's what hope is. Hope, therefore, always gives pleasure or joy because it's accompanied by this desire and this this belief that we will possess it, whereas wish will only produce pain and anxiety. It's interesting. Hope in the scriptures is a familiar theme. Hope in the New Testament used over 128 times in over 120 verses. In Romans 8, in just these verses here, verse 24 and 25, hope is used five different times. Now, to just kind of unpack hope, we need to start at the beginning that when, when Paul used the word hope, it's different than English because in English, when we say hope, it's, it's really, it's, it's, not, it's not containing any confidence. It's more of this wish. Well, I hope the Seahawks win tonight. I hope it stops raining sometimes for the summer. It's kind of, it's kind of this like, yeah, it's going to be fine, right? No worries. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. This is kind of what hope means in our modern society. You go onto the street and kind of you know, ask people, what do you think about hope? People are like, man, who's hope and how hope and, and who do we even believe to give us hope? But in the New Testament, when Paul used this word, it's actually a Greek word, elpis. It's a confidence born by expectation. Do you love that? When we're reading hope in the New Testament, it's not the no worries boat sinking that it's not really connected to reality, that hope and reality are somehow disconnected. When Paul was using this word LPs, it was confidence born by expectation. 
And so that's how he can say in verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all, for who hopes what they already have? The very definition of hope, Paul says, is is a confidence born by expectation, but an acknowledgement that it's not yet present. So it's not just a belief that everything will be fine and it is immediately transparent to us. And Paul's saying there's a confidence born by expectation, but we're going to have to wait for it. Because in this hope, we were saved. We have this confidence in what we wait, says Paul. Like this is where our belief is actually forged, that we would be a church that would wait well. That we would be a a group of people that would actually hope in in what Christ is doing in our life. Not wish. No, that we would have confidence because Christ is real. And Christ is in the middle of of writing a story in our lives, a story in society, a story. I mean, it's day by day when you read the news feed. It's like, holy cow. And and now North Korea, you know, the the nuclear weapon. And in Honolulu yesterday, they tested the the nuclear alarm. And you're, you're reading these things like, that doesn't give me much hope, Lord. But do we have an expectation that God's gonna see us through this? That he's gonna be good to us? That his very nature lives in us. And in this time and place, we're meant to worship him. How will we worship when we hope? And in this gap of where we live and to where we're going, we have a confidence expectation that that God's hope is real. And and I I just, I would love to kind of sit at the feet of Christ and say, you know, Jesus, what what do you want us to hope for? If I could offer one suggestion, I, I would suggest that Jesus would say, I would love you to confidently expect that I will meet all of your needs in my perfect timing. And then our mind, of course, goes to the difference between wants and needs. Because at this time of year, for anyone that has children in the room, we know there's a drastic difference between our wants and our needs. What kids think they want is very different than oftentimes what children really need. And as parents, we're trying to kind of bridge that gap. Do you really need the the Fisher-Price drone. Ah, you don't need that, you know, and so we want to bless them with little moments of joy, but the difference between want and needs. The scriptures are full of humanity at times getting off track as we wait to sort out our wants and needs. I've been reading First and Second Kings, and it's such an indictment into the way in which humanity drifts away from God's best into our own provision. And we can criticize and say, oh man, these kings, they just, they kept getting it wrong. Where God promised that if they would follow his institutes and his laws, that God would bless them. And we can say, you know, that's like with chronological snobbery is what C.S. Lewis calls it. When we look back and say, you know, what fools, it would, it would have been so easy to do it, but we can do it ourselves. And the difference between what we want and need, sometimes we lose hope. This is the story of King Saul, where he didn't even believe that he was a a good enough leader to be anointed king, and then the priest calls him king, and and then he finally gets into living into it, and in 1 Kings, Saul's out on the battlefront, and the soldiers are starting to get discouraged, and the priest says, Samuel, I'll be back in seven days. Wait for it. And and so Saul's fighting and trying to hold his troops together, and then when the time comes and Samuel doesn't arrive, Saul panics. Because in the gap between what we want and need, oftentimes hope evaporates. And so in 1 Kings, it tells the story of Saul saying, he's watching with his own eyes what's happening in society, saying, I guess I'm going to have to take matters into my own hand. 
go get a sacrifice. And so the king and the priest were never meant to be in the same office until the person of Jesus Christ. And so in the Old Testament, we have a priest and we have a king. They're never meant to be in the same office until Christ. But in 1 Kings, in the, in the absence of what God was doing, Saul can't see it with his own eyes. He calls for a sacrifice. He offers a sacrifice. And as he's laying down the sacrifice and offering to, in the Old Testament, pre-Christ, only the priest could do that. And as he's in the middle of taking matters literally into his own hands, literally with blood on his hands, pre, the priest Samuel comes walking in and he has these words, what have you done? What have you done? In the absence of knowing exactly what God's plan is, we can oftentimes get blood on our hands and take matters into our own hands with our relationships, with our vocation, with our, with our spiritual life. But the ability to hope is the ability to wait well and to believe that God will comfort us, that God can meet every need, even if not every want. It's different oftentimes. But I love the verse, the stylings read, Isaiah 40, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Only God, only God can comfort us. Only God can meet every need. And we're, when we're willing to hope in this, in this gap between where I'm at and to where I'm going, when we truly believe that God will step in to comfort us, will step in to meet every need, we finally live into this calling for our, for our faith to grow. Because hope acknowledges that there are things we desire that might not necessarily be good for us. C.S. Lewis talks about it this way. He says that when we notice the dirt, it's, that it's then that God is most present in us. It's, in fact, the very sign of his presence. And so when we take a look at the things that we're longing for and waiting for, but saying, God, I'm going to trust you to meet my needs. I'm going to choose to hope in you. This is the story that we get today in the book of Luke, chapter 2. And you could turn your Bibles if you desire. Luke 2, I want to look at two characters today, the character of Anna and the character of Simeon. And so in Luke 2, we have uh, the character of Anna. Now, let me pull this up here. In Luke 2, we have Jesus being presented in the temple, and we're kind of working backwards. Jesus has been birthed. His parents bring him in for a time of ritual purification and to, to lay a sacrifice uh, in order to see what God is doing. We, we, we honor a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they would bring, they'd bring the babies in eight days in and, and offer a, a ritual purification. Say, God, it's, it's because of your, your good deeds in my life that this child's even here. And so we have these two characters, these kind of side characters, they're minor characters with major hope. Let's look at the person of Anna in verse 36 to 38 of chapter 2 of Luke. There was this prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was old. She lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but she worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. So Mary and Joseph had brought Jesus into the temple. Most people can't even see him as the Christ. They're kind of going about the, the ritual of the temple, but not this Anna. She has somehow tuned in to continue to hope that the Christ would be born and that she would, her own eyes, would see the Christ. She was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple. She worshiped night and day. She was fasting and praying. And coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to redemption of Jerusalem. It's kind of this random story that only Luke tells, that they bring the baby in and no one else can really see them. They, they don't, of course, we know Christ born outside of where some people thought, oh, the king will be born in Jerusalem. No, no, the king was born in, in Bethlehem. 
And as Mary and Joseph bring Jesus into the temple, Anna, she can see him. And she says, you know, this is the one we've waited for. And we don't know a ton about her, but what you have in these, in these few verses is just pregnant with possibility. She was this widow. She knew loss. She never left the temple. She never let go of the hope. We don't know what brought her to the temple out of her great joy or great desperation, but her location and her setting matters. If you're looking for hope in this season, your setting matters. Where are you asking for God to fill you with more hope? If we're trying to find that in Facebook or social media, we will we'll become just slaves to, 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 to competition with others and envy. If we're trying to find it in the marketplace, we'll be slaves to debt and to this never-ending desire to somehow buy happiness. If we're trying to just you know, find contentment and joy in the season with merely outside relationships, we'll oftentimes find ourselves just wanting for a little bit more. But Anna goes, longing to cling to this hope, she goes to the temple believing that God would provide for her. And when we say a word like hope to a woman who was married for seven years and then a widow for 84, that's an audacious thing to say. I just hope that God will provide intimacy. That's an audacious claim that the gospel makes. To people that are struggling with infertility, just hope that God's gonna take care of you. People struggling with anxiety or depression, just, just hope that God will fill every need for you. I mean, the word is audacious. So we have to caution how we use it. Are we trying to actually say, no, no, this word hope is, is so containing a possibility that, that only Christ can meet your needs in this season. Trust in it. Wait for it. Anna embodies this, this endurance that she has waited and she has longed and she has believed that God would provide hope for her. And, and she's able to see Christ when no one else can see it. I want to just remind you, church, this morning that you are not defined as a disciple of Christ. You are not defined by what you don't have. You are not defined by who you lost or who lost you. You're not defined by what you're waiting to become. At a very simple level this Advent, you need to be reminded that you, you, you are who Christ says you are. You are beloved. You are enough. You are the one he sent his son to earth to, to live for and redeem. And when we, when we cling to that, that's where our hope is based, in that radical trust that my life is not dictated by what is yet to happen, but what, but what has already happened for me in Christ. This was Anna's story. She had a choice in the midst of her unmet needs that she would trust in God. In the waiting, in the pain, in the midst of the temple, in the longing, she has this radical faith that beget endurance in her life. And I love that word endurance. We've talked about it in this space before, but I, I'd like to talk about it once or twice a year. That this clinging to, to hope in us is asking for us to, for an endurance, that we would fight for hope when the world is constantly ringing in our ears that somehow the world is falling apart. When we think about endurance, let's go all the way back to 1914, the endurance journey to the South Pole. The Imperial Trans-Antarctica Expedition of 1914 to 1917 was going to be the first expedition to cross the entire Antarctic ice shelf. And so 28 men in 1914 set out from England. 
And in January 1915, this boat was 20 miles from its destination. They were almost to Antarctica. But in, in January 1915, the boat, the Endurance, got stuck in the ice. And then the ship sank. And before the ship sank, these 28 men, they lived on the boat, stuck in the ice, hoping that the weather would change, the winds would change, they could still pursue their expedition. And then they lived on their ice for, for months, and then they lived on Elephant Island, and then there was a daring boat rescue. They were finally rescued on August 30, 1916. 28 men lived 19 months living in the harshest climate in the world. How did these men endure? How did they, 19 months, the greatest survival story in the history of humanity. How did they survive? They had hope that each and every one of them mattered to the success of the expedition. And it is amazing because their expedition to cross Antarctica was a failure. And yet they're remembered for the greatest achievement in survival history, humanity. Because oftentimes what we think is our journey or our destination, we really don't have any idea what God's really writing in our lives. They thought it was a failure. Turns out that their, their very survival was the story that, that was being written. All because they had hope. Every man knew that they mattered infinitely to the commander of the enterprise, Ernest Shackleton. What's the point? The point is for us as believers to know that our life has purpose, that we belong as a church to Christ, and our life matters one to another. When we have hope, it produces endurance in our lives. Let's take a look at the second point in your outline, that unbelief often steals hope. Today we're looking at hope breaking through unbelief, and, and Simeon and Anne are kind of working against this kind of environment of unbelief. Uh, unbelief exists where hope has given way to cynicism. Where, where we no longer believe that God will be good to us. And what's interesting with Simeon and Anna is they're able to, to, to hold on to hope into what is this greater kind of system of unbelief, even though the system of unbelief is actually happening in the temple. And it's amazing how easily religion can replace hope or, or duty can replace real faith. Because all around Simeon and Anna, people were doing the work of religion, but nobody could actually see the Christ except for these two dear saints. Unbelief stills hope. And this is the believer's caution, particularly in this season of Advent. Are you choosing hope or unbelief? Because with unbelief that God is still working in your life comes cynicism and bitterness. And so if you start to take inventory of life, are you cynical when you look at others? Are you bitter when you look at what's happening in your life? You may need to pray to God for more hope to crack through unbelief. Hope is choosing belief daily. I think some of the most powerful words in the entire New Testament were spoken by the grieving father in the book of Mark about, about hope. And this comes from Mark 9. We have it here behind you. You can turn in your Bible. You can read it devotionally this week. This is just how do we cling to hope? Look at this, this dear man, nine, chapter 9, verse 17 of Mark. A man in the crowd answered, Jesus is out. He's doing his teaching ministry. And this man, an unnamed man at the time, teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that's robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashing his teeth, becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit they could not. And I would just tell you, it's easy to read the scriptures and have them kind of euthanize for meaning, but when you read that, even if you're not a parent, your heart breaks for this man. 
His child foams and has seizures and is like losing his mind. And in the ancient world, that was, that was some sort of belief that, you know, this, the child was broken, never to know the wholeness, never know relationship, never know God. This father is desperate. And he says, Jesus, I brought him to your people, but he didn't change. Jesus says, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long should I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. Jesus is saying the problem isn't the lack of healing. Jesus says the problem is the lack of faith. The, 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 the father actually believes something good will happen here. When the spirit inside the boy saw Jesus, immediately threw the boy into a convulsion, fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth, and Jesus asked the boy's father, how long? How long has he been like this? From childhood, the father answered. It is often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything... Take pity on us and help us. Again, even if you're not a parent, I mean, just like they, they literally are in a fight for hope and survival of their child. And then he turns to Christ and he says, if you can do anything, please help. And Jesus kind of convicts him of this. He says, if you can, like this man is wishing, but not really hoping. If, says Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father explained, immediately, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And then Jesus saw a crowd was running to the scene. He rebuked the spirit. You deaf, mute spirit. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed violently, and it came out. And the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted to his feet, and he stood up. He's healed. He's made whole. He's redeemed. He's fixed. This is the work that Jesus wants to do in our lives. And so often we turn to Jesus and say, you know, if you can do this, like it's so hard to fight against the cynicism, to, to fight against the bitterness. We, we've longed for this thing in our life. We have this Anna moment that we've waited and we've waited and we've waited for God to fulfill and we're still wanting to come to Jesus and he says, anything is possible if you believe and we say, help my unbelief. Hope changes lives in Christ. And so the prayer for us as a church is to look at the situations where hope is dissipating or we're clinging to, to Christ to do something different. And this can be our prayer. Jesus, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. I was deeply convicted over the course of the summer where I was praying for a specific situation with specific people in my family. And I was starting to believe that people don't change. I, I can, I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing. I've said that to Heather sometimes. I'm like, you know, people just don't change. And she's like, you're a pastor. What are you talking about? I'm like, I know, but it's just hard to keep hoping for change. And, and this man prayed for me this summer, and he, he just called me on it. He said, any part of your heart that doesn't hope in the power of Christ is given over to a lie. So what have you stopped hoping for Jesus to do? And I was like, busted because I stopped believing that Jesus could help change these certain family dynamics and it is not perfect but I want to tell you church there is movement because when we hope we're saying I want my faith to grow and Jesus I'm going to continue to wait in this absence but from where I'm at to where I'm going I'm going to choose belief I'm not going to choose unbelief I don't want to be a slave to bitterness or cynicism I want more of endurance, and then I, I want more obedience to flow from that. That's the third point of our outline, that obedience allows us to wait well. Paul says in verse 25, I read it for you, that if we, if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. That all of the spiritual life, 
all of the spiritual life is learning how to wait well. We've talked about that. That was the story of Israel. That was the story of Moses. That was the story of Abraham. That was the story of Jake. I mean, when you, just, when you start to read the scriptures through that lens, the story of faith is that we would be waiting well in the absence from where I'm at to where I'm going, that our faith would grow and that we would continue to wait well. I just, I, I love the image of like God sitting in heaven, like watching some situation in our life unfold and like saying to the angels, like, wait for it wait for it, like it's coming. And oftentimes we operate without that next step in front of us and it's like, oh man, I can just, I can't even see the end of today. I can't see 4 p.m., I'm so exhausted. And God's like, I have so much I'm waiting to show you if you'll wait well. I have so much I'm waiting to reveal in you. There's so much goodness that we've born out of this season. Will you hope in me? Will you continue to believe I'm not done yet? Will you continue to believe I'm operating in ways that you'll never see? Why do you operate by only what you'll see? What you hope, says God. I love how Anne Lamott defines hoping. She says this in her book, Bird by Bird. She says, hope begins in the dark. The stubborn hope that if you just show up and try to do the right thing, the dawn will come. You wait and watch and work. You don't give up. You don't give up. That was the story of Simeon, the second minor character that we get in the book of Luke. And Simeon is got this story where he just, he continued to believe that, that God was going to show up, that God was going to reveal to him. He'd been promised, it says in Luke 2, that he would see the Christ. We don't know a lot about that. We don't know a ton about his, his biography, but in, in verses 25 through 35 of Luke 2, there's this character, Simeon, a man of Jerusalem called Simeon, righteous, devout. He was waiting for the consolation, the wholeness of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. Man, there's so much in that. The Holy Spirit was on him. So much of how we're able to hope isn't even a product of us being really hopeful. It's merely just an acknowledgement of what Jesus wants to do in our life. We don't invite the Spirit. We don't control the Spirit. We simply receive the Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, reveal in me more hope. Reveal in me this ability to wait. It's not about us earning it. It's just a matter of releasing it. So the Spirit was on him, had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not die before he'd seen the Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. He's in the temple courts. And when the parents, Mary and Joseph, brought the baby in, the child Jesus, to do for him the custom of the law, they're going to dedicate him, they're going to, you know, sacrifice an animal. Simeon took the child in his arms and he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all nation a light for revelation to the gentiles and the glory of your people israel like just just so you can imagine it mary and joseph bring him in and simeon is is in the midst of the temple everybody's there looking for god but nobody can see him but not simeon the spirit was on him the spirits moved him and then he sees the baby he grabs the baby and he's actually holding the baby and laying this prophecy over him and the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, Mary, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. It's like, hmm, what does that mean? It's obviously a marker towards what Christ would do in society. It was a marker towards Christ coming, not just for, for hope, but also to give his life so that we would have hope. And so he holds the baby and he kind of speaks this word of prophecy to Mary that, hey, things are going to get hard. But Simeon models for us this amazing cons consistency 
that he's showing up each and every day, but he's not, he's not just going through the kind of routine of religion. He, he's being obedient to what God wants him to do. And when we're tuned into more of the spirit in our lives, we can be more obedient. We can wait well. We can continue to kind of long for certain relationships in our life to change, for certain things with the world to change. You know, we're going we're gonna to learn to labor and to wait. We're going we're gonna to pray often, and we're going to believe the spirit's powerful, and we want hope to grow in us. Because remember what Paul says, who hopes for what they already have? Who hopes for what they already have? And so we will believe that we have the power of Christ. We will believe, as Matthew 12, 21 says, that in his name, the nations will put their hope. We will believe what Paul says in Colossians 1, 27, that to whom God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the riches of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So that when we are in Christ, we have his hope. And that when we have his hope, it creates this endurance and this obedience And so we're not trying to earn hope this Advent, but we're literally saying, Jesus, release in me more hope to see you working through what are often stories of unbelief or stories of routine or stories of busyness or stories of just wondering if things are ever going to change. Jesus, may my life be consistent that you're still working. I'm not just making foolish wishes. I'm hoping in the power of the gospel. Who hopes in what they already have? Jesus, there's something else that we want to have happen. But in the meantime, in obedience and endurance, we will wait well. That's hard though, friends. Recently we were down in California on vacation. We had a good time, but like all things, you can't take a vacation from your challenges and problems. You ever find that to be true? It's like, man, once I just go on vacation, I'll be good. You know, we had this, we had this good time. But on our final morning there, I woke up early before anyone else in the little place we had rented was up, and I went walking on the beach. We're out of Newport Beach. It was thick, thick, thick fog. And I woke up that morning to this litany of problems. All I could see in my mind's eye was everything that was waiting to happen. I could see issues in my relationships. I could see issues in my vocation. I could see issues with people in the church, the issues that hadn't been fixed. I, I was literally, I was awoken by what was troubling me. And now I'm walking on the beach and it's thick fog and I'm like, isn't this just kind of like life right now? Like we're out here in vacation and on our very last day, it's gonna, you know, I'm like chicken little, just like grumpy pants, you know, and I'm, I'm like walking in the fog and I'm walking, you know, and I'm walking down the beach and I'm literally just cataloging all the things that I just can't, I, I want to believe in God for, but you know, all these things I can see have happened. And I'm just taking these issues, yeah, no hope, just cynicism, unbelief, discouragement, and then luckily here, I'm like walking all by myself on this five-mile stretch of beach, and it just, it, it hits me that like I should turn around, and as I turn around in the thickest fog here on the Newport Harbor, I look out over the sea, and it's a simple thing, but the sun is just blazing through the fog, and this is literally the scene. I like pulled out my phone to take a picture because this picture fails to even capture to me even in the midst of all that I was wanting to God to do, it was like this just very visual reminder that the hope breaks through. And that instead of daily taking stock of all the things that haven't happened yet, Jesus is saying, will you continue to believe that my hope breaks through? 
Will you continue to believe that in the middle of what you're still waiting to have happen, that I'm not done yet? And it was this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful moment that I wish I could just take you with me, my friends. I wish I could just put you on that beach. And after the last couple of days in Seattle, you're like, yes, I'll go with you. Like, but I wish I could just share that with you this morning. Hope breaks through. And that's like the most cliche Advent series title we've ever come up with. No, it isn't. Because the truth of the gospel is that in the meantime, that Jesus wants to birth in us this endurance and this obedience, that in all the things we face, we would still radically believe that Jesus is making us into being people more like him. And that that would be our very testimony to a hopeless world. This church actually believes that Jesus is real and shows up in their life. May we hope well this season, friends. Will you pray with me now? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this church and the way in which they do exhibit your hope. The way in which they do seek to bless people in this community. The way in which they do seek to bless each other in relationship. And we pray, Lord, for this season of Advent these next 20-something days, that we would hope well, that, we, that our faith would grow this month and not just even kind of like survive, but it would actually sustain us, that we would, we would hope for the relationships where we don't yet see you taking root, that we would hope in the things in our vocation or our spiritual life that are feeling a little bit disconnected. Lord Jesus, we pray for this month that our obedience and our endurance would grow. And our hope would be creating us, men, women, young and old, with growing faith. That you're doing something in our lives. Even while we wait, we're going to trust and believe. In your great name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.